If we can't get comfortable with the thoughts in our own minds, if we're too busy to meditate because we can't shut our minds off, that maybe we should just become okay, develop a relationship with whatever contents are arising so that at some point you can actually begin to modify and curate it based upon the experience you want to have that supports and aligns with your purpose. Welcome to A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Wong. This podcast is dedicated to lighting the way towards greater inner peace and purpose. My own journey has taken me from a decade-long corporate finance career to following my own path as a purpose coach. I help people move from an unfulfilling career to a meaningful and purpose-driven career in life. Now let's dive into today's show. Hello and welcome to this episode of A Way of Thinking. I'm your host, Jessica Huang. And in this episode, I interview fellow Dharma yogi and founder of Wellspring Mind, Victoria Davis. I have the great honor of talking with Victoria about finding your purpose, and she talks about it as being a process of subtraction. And Victoria also shares about the benefits of meditation and how it helped her with her obsessive compulsive disorder and ultimately led her to start her business. We also have a great conversation about what it's like teaching meditation in corporate settings and the process of bringing this practice to people who may not have otherwise been interested in meditation and having them start that journey. So keep listening to hear my conversation with Victoria Davis. And also, if you are looking for an escape from the cold weather, then I highly suggest that you take a look at Victoria's Costa Rica retreat that's happening on March 13th to the 17th. So before we get to the episode, I have a few quick announcements. First off, I want to give a little shout out to my Dharma Yoga student, Mary, who told me about how she was listening to the show the other day after our practice And I just want to say how much I love connecting with you guys. It's so cool to hear how you're tuning in, listening to the show and enjoying it. So if you are ever at Dharma Yoga Center or if you want to jump on Instagram or hit me up in whatever fashion you'd like, I love hearing from you guys. It is so cool to connect with you and know that people are really listening. You know, it's so funny when you make a podcast, you have no idea where it's going And it's really been the coolest thing talking with my listeners. It's so amazing. So quick shout out to Mary. And also a second quick shout out is to anyone who's listening in Norway. So this month, Norway has had the second highest amount of listens, second to the US. And I will say that I never thought that people from all over the world would be listening to me and the conversations I'm having. So I want to give a quick shout out to anyone who's listening from Norway. So cool. And also, if you want to support any of the efforts that go into making this podcast, you can donate to the podcast at my website, jessicahuangcoaching.com slash donate. And that will go towards the efforts that go behind the scenes of making this podcast happen. And also, if you are someone that is looking to move from a kind of corporate career into something more creative and find that purpose-driven life that you really want, then I invite you to jump on a strategy session with me 
and start strategizing, moving into that that purpose-driven life that you've always wanted. And you can do that at my website, jessicahuangcoaching.com. And I look forward to connecting to more of you. So thank you so, so much for listening. And now without further ado, here's my conversation with Victoria Davis. Our guest today is Victoria Davis. Victoria is a teacher of meditation, mind training, and energetic movement focused on fostering and maintaining genuine happiness. She is the founder of Wellspring Mind, a wellness company which brings meditation, mindfulness, and holistic programming to corporations. She is currently based in New York City. So welcome to the show, Victoria. Thank you, Jessica. It's so good to be with you today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. So Victoria and I met because we are both students of Sri Dharma Mitra. And so I would often be practicing by Victoria and just super wowed by her incredible (laughs) postures. And as we got to know each other, you know, I was talking to her one day about how I had this podcast and we got to talking and just decided we needed to do this. So I am super, super excited to have you on the show today. And I am so happy to be here. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So Victoria, I would love to get started talking a little bit about purpose. That was the first thing Mm -hmm. that you and I were talking about. And so I would love to get your thoughts on like, what does purpose mean to you? Yeah, it's a great question. And I know that this is what you stand for, right? Helping people find their purpose and helping them do it in the right way. And it's so interesting when we talk about purpose, because I really think that purpose to everyone is going to be different because we're all such different people. And so understanding where our own purpose lies, I think really comes down to knowing ourselves, right? Being able to maintain enough internal stillness so that beneath all the distraction, beneath all of our responsibilities, we really know why we're doing things. So purpose to me really means understanding my big why. And that really took a long time for me to develop myself. It was kind of a process of process of subtraction. It's like, this doesn't work. This doesn't make me happy. Now what? And so purpose to me is really finding my why. And you probably know how to help people find that, find their way through that sort of debris better even than I do. And because when people come to me and they're struggling with what actually makes them happy, I just take them through this process of subtraction. And so often I feel like our own purpose must come to the surface because it's really what we're all here to do. Yeah. I love what you said there about subtraction. I think that is a brilliant way to look at it because it's true. It's like, there's so much that we don't like that about what we're doing. And it's like, how mm-hmm. do we take more, take away that stuff and then add more to the things that we do like, right? Totally. So, totally. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been like with finding your purpose? So I think looking at, we're talking about this process of subtraction, right? Looking at coming from my own space, I... I grew up on a farm in the middle of Illinois, and when I moved to New York City, there were so many things coming at me and all these flashing, shiny lights and all of these seeming opportunities, and it didn't take me very long to realize that beneath all of this stuff, 
I was really, really, really unhappy. So now I talk a lot about the process of subtraction because it took a lot for me to remove those layers to really recognize why I was actually here, what my purpose actually is. And that definitely didn't mean I didn't get distracted by the shiny stuff because that has been a habitual issue since, you know, probably for most of us since we were toddlers, right? And from that space, you know, this idea of finding purpose has consistently been what, what to take up and what to give up, right? So what sort of practices am I not doing right now that would benefit me in a genuine way that will lead to happiness and flourishing? And what am I doing that is really a deterrent? And that, I think, is primarily where so many of us, myself included, especially when I was 20, so many of us spend so much time doing things that are taking us away from our joy. And that's really what I saw. That's really what I saw when I was young enough to do something about it. And it took a really long time to kind of, you know, because habits, right? Habits are developed over time and undeveloping them and then filling them with something more meaningful in that space also takes time. So how did I get into this space? How did I develop this idea of process of subtraction? That idea was given to me. And when I really started putting it into place, that's really when I saw results. That's really when I when I began to realize that I can be the curator of my own life and I can curate my own genuine happiness. And honestly, I got to take things off the table. You know, I can't be drinking seven cups of coffee a day. I can't be going out. I can't be taking all these substances. I can't be staying up till 4 a.m. in multiple nights a week, which was what my story was. And from that space, it's like, oh, look at all of this that now has opened up. I get to sit here and talk to you for an hour on a beautiful weekday in New York. This is great, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned that subtraction had kind of been given to you. So where did that actually come from, that idea? Yeah. So this was an early radical fortune of mine. I happened to walk past a literal sign in the depths of kind of my internal despair. And this sign was to a space that was offering morning meditation. It was a place in New York City called the Three Jewels in 2012. They were offering 8 a.m. meditation every weekday. And it was by donation. And if it weren't for all of those things and the fact that it was two blocks away from where I was living, I don't know if any of this would have actually fallen into place. And all of these things happening in the way that I did, that they did meant that I ended up meditating. I was terrible at it to start. Absolutely terrible at it. I just spent most of the time trying to figure out, you know, what I could afford for the rest of my day and asking my mind to just make it stop. Going multiple times then every week really got me into a space where I was like, okay, this is it. You know, this is the beginning of something. And coming from the meditation space, I started studying Buddhism. The Three Jewels in New York City is a, a Buddhist center. It teaches Tibetan Buddhism of, of a specific lineage. And, and that's where I started. And the idea of this process of subtraction is a major concept in, in Buddhism, especially. Mm, amazing. So mm. yeah, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about like what was kind of your mindset or mentality like prior to finding meditation? <sighs> Great question. So I grew up Roman Catholic. And I wouldn't say my family was super, super religious, but you know the the cultural traditions of this this sort of religion I know so many of us are familiar with. 
And, you know, so this idea of kind of be strict with yourself, feel guilty about a lot of things, that that was really deeply embedded in me. Mm-hmm. And when I came to New York City, the initial offer I had was in fashion. I was young. The first time I came here, I was 19, 19 to 20. I moved overseas for a little while and then came back when I was 22. And being in a space that, how do I say this sweetly? The the contents of your mind is not your most valuable asset. Mm. That can be difficult when, especially when the the primary asset is as long as you look good when you show up, that's really that's really what matters. And so mm-hmm. what I found in myself that my value system was totally upside down. And my value system then was who do I know? How do I look? What am I doing? Right. Where now it feels like, who am I? How do I feel? And how am I being? Right. So these ideas now have totally flipped on their head. And what I see, and the reason that I look at my experience as just kind of almost a shining example of what so many of us deal with, is because I was in that space for long enough that it made me feel dead inside in a way that. I I did my absolute best in that space when my practice was deepest, right? So that also let me know from, from an experiential position that when the inside is good, the outside is great. Or maybe it's when the inside is great, the outside is good. Because even though it seems like our internal state and our external appearance don't maybe have so much to do with each other, they have loads to do with each other, Right. Because in this position that I was in, I was miserable and I wasn't really booking that much. Because the way it turns out is that if you're that unhappy, and I wasn't, I wasn't super editorial, I wasn't runway, I would do like, I would do print work. So any sort of like thumbnails you see for like e-commerce and like online stuff, athleisure, Lululemon, Macy's, Adidas, stuff like that. That's sort of the the line of work that I was in. And in that positioning, People don't want dead faces. They want faces that look a certain way and seem a certain way. Mm -hmm. So I suppose what I really learned in all of that is that if you want to be good in one part of life, we really have to start with the core of our being and being, having my value systems totally misplaced taught me that in a really difficult way. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, that's so interesting, this whole idea of like, from appearances, it seems like they just n- want what is the external. Sure, sure. But your experience is actually when my internal was in a better place, it actually was helping my external. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I, I had other people tell me this frequently enough that before I was really able to experience it myself, it was like, okay, enough people are telling me that when I'm happy, you know, I look different. And I think that's true for all of us, right? Yeah. If we're if we're really unhappy on the inside, it's hard to hide. We have emotions and our faces show them universally because emotions are designed for community, right? Emotions are designed to be a shared expression. And I mean, that's a big part of um who is this? Paul Ekman, 
wrote the book on universal expressions. He spent a decent amount of time in Papua New Guinea, and I studied this for a time. It had to do with my coursework in meditation over the last decade. And looking at how we cultivate emotions and are emotions actually universal. The interesting thing that we find is emotions exist to send nonverbal signals to other people in our tribe. So in that way, like this idea that, oh, if I'm not telling you something, that I'm not communicating anything is so untrue because our entire systems were designed to be wildly communicative whether or not we speak. Mm, I love that because I feel like I'm someone that like my emotions just like read all over my face and sometimes <laughs> and sometimes I have considered that a bad thing. You know, I'm like, everyone knows how I feel. It's all over yeah. my face. But to your point, like that is the natural way of being and actually like the way things should be. <laughs> totally, totally. And now just because we're communicating something doesn't mean that everyone can always read it. Some people just aren't very good at nonverbal cues and that's okay. If you're in tune, if you're attuned to reading nonverbal communication, look at somebody's eyes. You can tell what they're thinking <laughs> for better and for worse, right? Absolutely. That is so funny. Okay. So along those lines, so you start off in fashion. Mm -hmm. So then, and you end up starting to take these meditation classes at Three Jewels. Mm -hmm. So what was kind of the pathway from there into starting your business? Yeah. So I started teaching in 2015. So I started meditating in 2012 when I had just had enough. I knew that I had to figure out something else because everything external I had tried. You know, I tried different relationships, geographical locations, different pharmaceuticals, different substances, different schedules, all of these things that were sort of external, I had really given a go. And I was like, all right, this is I, like, I really love to live till 30. And this is my last option because I don't see, I really don't see how I'm going to keep going the way that I was feeling. So I started meditating, right? And then the first retreat I went on was in 2014 and it came at the perfect time. And then from there, I just kind of kept going with things. I really started studying more. I was introduced to Sri Dharma and that happened in 2015. I took a 200-hour training. I took a 500-hour training. And it was that year that I started teaching. So my massive breakthrough in, in meditation happened when I was on retreat with my heart teacher in 2015. And the way I kind of talk about this experience was I, when I was meditating, it was like something opened up for me where I began to remember again in color. You know, there were textures and temperatures and things just felt like, it would almost be like watching a black and white television in like the winter of Siberia somewhere. Like that's what my mind seemed like it felt like before to like being in the Wizard of Oz. You know, it was just like that degree of difference. And when that really started to open up for me or when it did open up for me, I was like, okay, I'm feeling this now. Everyone needs to feel this way. Mm. And you know, coming from kind of the Midwest, unfortunately, traditionally, I think people in the U.S., but especially in this space, I just didn't grow up around a lot of happy people, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest issue is that we kind of imprison ourselves with all of these responsibilities, with all these shoulds, right? And mm -hmm. losing our own purpose, as you were, we were alluding to before, right? We don't understand our own purpose. So then we never really feel like we're accomplishing what we need. 
And in this retreat, when it really became clear to me that not only did I have the power to remember things in color, I also had the power to create a colorful future in the way that I wanted things to look, feel, and be. And I knew that that for me so involved teaching others what I had then learned. And I was only three years in at that point. And that was eight years ago. So I started teaching in 2015. I started my company in 2019, Wellspring Mind. And that's what we're doing now. I love that. I I love that idea of like, well, it worked for me and I can't, you know, like I can only imagine that like it will work for other people and I want to bring it to them. Right. I love that idea because I think that's that's the foundation. I think so many of us kind of in the wellness space really thrive upon. Right. Is this idea of like, well, if it can work for me, why why can't it work for other people? Like, let me bring it to more people, right? Yeah. You know, and I mean as well, for anyone listening, it's also like, I, I think it's it's a really viable question to ask oneself, say, what have my struggles been in life? Okay, these are my key, the key aspects that have been really difficult for me. And do other people struggle with these similar things, right? Or what similar to that do other people really struggle with? And for me, it was obsessive, intrusive thinking, compulsive behavior, unhappiness, depression, anxiety, you know, all of these issues that we so often hear people talk about. And then it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm doing something that works that I'm not hearing a lot of people talk about. And then it's the question, why isn't everyone doing this, right? And then how can I make this, this practice, these things, whatever it is that has really bridged that gap for us? It's like, how do I help others? How do I make these assets, practices, ideas more accessible? And so that's that's what I've been working on. Absolutely. That's beautiful. So I'm curious, like in your journey, like, because as you mentioned, like it is hard to start a meditation practice. I feel like that, you know, especially the first time you sit down, it's just like everything is just coming to the surface. And it's hard to sit still, right? And so what do you feel like has helped you or like other people you teach to kind of like stick with it and really find the benefit, the real benefits, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Jessica, that's that's a great question. Those are great questions. So the interesting thing and the thing I hear most often when people tell me why they don't meditate, it's, oh, my mind is too busy. I'm way too busy to meditate. And that really, like you can really like it, that sort of commentary to someone saying, I'm just too dirty. I'm just too dirty to take a bath. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, at least in the beginning. Now, once you've been meditating for a while, you're probably not meditating anymore because your mind is busy. But in the beginning, that's a prime reason to meditate. Because and in the way that I teach meditation, it doesn't have to be hard. There are three fundamental steps and we do them in order. We learn how to relax, and that helps by using the breath, right? We connect with the body, we ground. So step one, ground the body. This is how we relax. This happens on the inhale, and then we bring the attention into the physical body where the body is touching the earth, right? Mm -hmm. Step one, relax. We can learn how to do that. With practice, it happens. Step two, hone the attention. With the single pointed attention on a stable grounded foundation, you can do just about anything. And then this is really where the magic happens in step three, when we learn how to expand our awareness so that it's global. We're seeing what's happening in the periphery while we're stable, grounded and relaxed. 
and focused, we also are present and aware to what is happening around us. And when we learn those things in order, we can't really do this backwards, right? If we learn those in order, meditation is not only pretty simple, it's fun. Mm. I love that. I love that breakdown because it, yeah, it's, it does sound simple. And it's just mm. like, it's like you're building foundation right. and then you're growing upon it, right? Absolutely. And I think so often people think it's difficult because, you know, I don't know who's out there teaching people that the way to meditation is to turn off your mind. It's like, no, it's not. It's not like a light switch, right? It's like the mind thinks involuntarily. That's what the mind is designed to do, right? Just like we feel emotions involuntarily, just like our heart beats involuntarily, right? So this idea that we can just shut off our mind is not really what meditation is. Meditation is learning how to work with our minds. Meditation is learning how to make our minds serviceable. You know, and so often that's why when people ask me what I do, I say I teach meditation and mind training practices. Because when we meditate, all we're doing is training our minds to become serviceable so that we have our minds instead of our minds having us, right? Mm, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Along those lines, so you you mentioned this whole thing where you were struggling with a lot of intrusive thoughts and all these things. So like, how did meditation really help that? That's a great question. So I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, kind of like textbook, DSM-5 sort of sort of diagnosis, which is a little bit different, a lot of bit different than the OCD that people might mention when they need things really clean on average, right? Or mm -hmm. when somebody really likes to hang their clothes by color in their closet, purples with purples, whites with whites, yellows with yellows, right? Obsessive compulsive disorder, when you have this sort of textbook diagnosis, often means really intrusive, for me, very negative, harmful, violent thoughts. So that mm -hmm. was a really hard one to get through. It can also mean obsessive thoughts that become compulsive action. So something that that I still mm -hmm. notice that I can do when I'm really stressed these, these really tick up when I'm, when I'm meditating properly, when I'm relaxed, when everything is, it's these things don't happen much, much at all. One thing that I often did would be when I would leave in a, my apartment or leave any space, I would have to check the door multiple times. But for me, things, it was important to find balance. So if I turned the knob to the right, I would do it three times and then turn it to the left three times. Mm -hmm. And weight distribution was important to me as well. These things all sound absolutely wackadoo. And it's because in action, they kind of are, right? Turn, 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 turn. But if I turn more forcefully on the right side, I'd have to do it again on the left side, right? Or it would also be like, walking past a corner, if one shoulder brushes, I'd have to walk back the other way so the other shoulder would brush the corner, right? This is sort of like kind of stock standard behavior for someone that has OCD. Um, and then when I was sitting to meditate, part of my struggle would be the imagery that would come to mind. Like I have a, a small puppy that kind of looks like an Ewok. And I just remember in my mind, I would just have these visuals of her being so painfully hurt. And, and it would just be like a really obviously difficult thought. And so what I really had to learn in that process, because ultimately, right, if we take the 30,000 foot view, that's just distraction. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. you know. And because of those labels, this is bad, this is harmful, this is violent, it feels even more intense. So when we just take the understanding, okay, this is distraction. And that genre might feel a little different, but it's distraction nonetheless. 
How do I relax enough? That's step one, right? So I can release the distraction and then go back to the object of my attention, which is an intentional object, which is how we hone that attention Mm -hmm. so that I can, again, be expansive. And so for me, I guess I just got way more practice. And it was even more important to stabilize in that relaxed base. Yeah. And I think you bring such a great point up, which is practice, right? And I think that's the foundation of meditation, the foundation of our yoga practice. That practice is what really allows us to receive the benefits of what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and we can think about it. It's like, oh, I'm not good at meditation. Are you good at the piano? You know, and if you are, it's probably because you practiced a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. You can consider your mind like the most important instrument that you'll ever experience. Yes, absolutely. My brain went, or you can be like me where I did not practice piano and that's why I was not good at piano. (laughs) (laughs) Precisely. It's like, oh, I'm terrible at meditation. How many times have you meditated? (laughs) Yeah. Enough cannot be said for how practice really makes makes us, allows us to do the things we're doing. So I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? It's like you sit down and you do, you practice all this meditation so that when the intrusive thought comes up, you know what to do. Your practice then kicks in and allows you to, to get back to that expansiveness. You know, and one of the, the most beautiful aspects about meditation, especially learning meditation in this way, is this expansiveness, what I call awareness. You can also call it global attention, right? What I call this awareness capacity is the ability to recognize, you know, and I love talking about this when we're, when we're digital. So I literally have a frame around my body, right? So when you, when something, when a distraction is just sticking its nose in, you can sense it. And so then you can apply that antidote before it smacked you in the face. Me, I'm going I'm to change the pronoun. I can apply the antidote before that distraction, whether it be mm-hmm. harmful, whether it feel violent, whatever it is, when I know, because I can feel it, something is coming into the space. And if you're meditating, you can feel you're in your still awareness and then something, you know, it's, it's like there's a glitch in the matrix. I can feel it. <sighs> Relax even more. Take it back. Here we are again. Oh, I love that. So before the thought really comes into your mind. Totally. You're sensing that kind of agitation. Absolutely. And kind and getting ahead of it. Absolutely. Wow. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. Also I'm I'm curious, you know, when you talk about this expansiveness and because it makes me think of like the ability to say like I want to help other people, I think comes from that expansiveness, yeah. right? That ability to, to kind of see yourself in other people of want, of that kind of wholeness. I, you know, Dharma talks about these kind of things a lot to us of kind of collective minds and all of these kind of right. concepts. Do you feel like that played a factor into you starting your business? In seeing myself in other people? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, that can be one of the biggest motivations. I, one of my teachers says, one of my teachers, his name is B. Allen Wallace. Uh, and he, so I, I want to give proper credit here. He talks about compassion as three fundamental steps. We have to attend to, right? So this is why our attentional capacity is important. We have to be paying enough attention to recognize where suffering is. 
And in this society, if we're paying any attention at all, it's not difficult to notice. Attend to, and then I have to be able to feel with. So I need to be enough in touch with my emotions that I can understand what they're feeling because I get it experientially. So that's feel with. And then three is act for. That really is what sets compassion aside from something like sympathy, right? Where we can just kind of be feeling with, right? We can just be sad with, but then we're not acting for. So we stay in that feeling of recognition, understanding this other person's emotion experientially and feeling it just long enough that it gets us to move, just long enough that it gets us to act, to bring that other person out of their suffering to the best of our ability. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree more. That That's, I feel like, is the power of compassion. It really is that connection point that makes you want to do more for others. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much wisdom in compassion, really compassionate people. You know, just looking at the logical breakdown of that, if we take that to be true, those three steps, if you're genuinely a compassionate person, you have to have a sustainable enough attentional capacity to see what's going on. Not everybody can attend to things fully. Not everyone can feel in and not everyone has courage enough to act. So genuinely and wholly compassionate people kind of like subversively have a lot of phenomenal qualities that we're just putting together and labeling compassion. And they're all really, 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 really important, not only for purpose, but for living a fundamentally profound life. I love everything that you just said there. Not everyone has kind of the the capacity, I would say in a way, right, to be able to to act on these notions, because that was something that I was thinking of as you were talking about starting this business. It's like, you know, your average person can go and meditate and find the benefits of it and appreciate it. But it takes a different level of, I don't know, of compassion to really say, but now how can I create something that allows me to help others with these things that I have benefited from myself? Absolutely. You know, And I got to say, Jessica, as well, part of the reason, actually the main part of the reason I started this company is just because I can't see myself doing anything else. And the reason for that is I don't actually believe that there is anything that's as important. And in all the times I've tried to work for someone, if I am not good at doing things that I don't think are valuable. I'm not good at it at all. So at the point where I think I can be doing something that's more meaningful. Now, of course, there are, and you know this well, right? You run your own company. There are all these administrative tasks you're going to have to do. You have to manage people. And those things are all important to make the machine work. But at the end of the day, I have to do the thing that I think is the most needed and the most valuable. And right now I'm doing the thing that I think is most valuable on the planet. Whether or not I'm doing it the best is doesn't matter. What matters is that it's the only thing I can see myself doing because I know it's the thing we need everywhere. Yes, yes. I absolutely can relate to that feeling. I think it's it's definitely the driving force that I completely connect to that notion where it's just mm. like, but I can't imagine myself doing anything else. And mm. as someone that... It's interesting because I come from a corporate background. And so I find it so interesting because your business is bringing meditation and all these wellness practices to corporations. And it's, it is an environment that I feel like is sorely in need 
of these practices, right? Because it's so much around driving for numbers and driving for, you know, profit and all these things. And then to bring in this kind of intentionality and and different way of thinking into that space is so interesting. What actually caused you to decide that you wanted to like bring it into corporations? Yeah, another great question. Really because I looked at, so I worked in a doctor's office uh, kind of right when I moved to the city. I, I have a background in kind of like health consultation. So basically I was working with people alongside a, alongside a nutritionist. And I was just working with people on kind of like, what is a diet 101, et cetera, et cetera. This came from a naturopathic um, kind of apprenticeship that I had when I was when I was in college. But then when I started to look at, this was like a semi-miserable place to work. And I think this was maybe a little bit, a little bit heavier than the average space, but maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. I have worked personally in an office space much less than the average American because I can't, I, I can't really take it, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I was looking at where do people need this most, how can we impact the greatest number of people is, and especially provide these practices to the people who need it most? I started teaching at shelters in the city and I started mm-hmm. teaching in corporate spaces. I love that. So you're thinking in terms of like the places where it's just like, yeah, people really need it. I I could not agree more. Yeah, where we need it. You know, because it's also like, I've spent, I've been like, do I teach in studios right now? No, I I did teach in a studio and then I didn't. And then I did again, then I didn't. And I was like, you know what? A lot of people can teach in studios, right? Like, what would I love to spend my time doing? I would really love to isolate those spaces where people really need it, really, really, really need it. Because the people who are going to studios, probably medium need it, right? Mm -hmm. But the people who are in the office spaces, if we can find our way in the door, they're the ones. And experientially, that seems to be true. (laughs) They're the ones who in the middle of the day, right, at 2 p.m., it's like instead of going out and grabbing your third espresso for the day, why don't we sit together? Why don't we have a conversation? Why don't you look internally, see what's happening in your own mind, take stock here, take many breaths, and then go back to your desk? Hmm. That's such an interesting point, though, because when you think about it, the people that are showing up in studios are people who are seeking it out themselves, right? They're they're people that saying, like, I want to meditate. Yeah. or do whatever kind of wellness thing. And I will go and look for the place. And yeah. you're actually taking it to the people who are not in a way seeking it out and right. then going, but here's an offering. Yeah. So how has that kind of looked like? Because you're you're working with people who are not necessarily thinking, I want to go and meditate. Great question. Great question. So coming into a space, I can always tell, well, not always, I can pretty frequently tell Like usually there's like a two thirds capacity of the room that really want to be there. And then like a 20 to 30% that's like, I mean, I guess. And (laughs) kind of the the biggest return on my time investment isn't how much I'm getting paid for to be in the space. It's how that 20 to 35% shifts or doesn't, right? And that really is how I base my teaching because 
within the confidence, I have great teachers. I have some of the, and we share at least one of them, right? You know, in terms of the teachings that we have received, I have the utmost confidence, which means it's about my delivery. It's about how I am delivering this information and who can I impact. So when I come into a space and people seem uninterested, that's when the jokes come out. That's when the metaphors come out. That's when these references, both before, in, and after the meditation come through, because that's when the integration happens, right? Not only can we impact people when we're actually practicing, but coming through, if somebody still seems they're a little too cool for school, I have a couple tools, right? A couple little tricks that that I'll use within this space and kind of maybe put them on their toes. A few things have worked, a couple things haven't. And so I keep testing depending on the sort of room that, that I'm put within. And that really is... That's the way I look in the mirror, right? And not everybody probably is going to be interested, but at least we can gain presence from people. And then they can make their own choice, right? Was this a valuable effort for me? And even if somebody feels like, looks like they're not enjoying it, they might actually turn around after and tell you how meaningful this is. Again, I'll change pronouns. I might have someone in a room that seems really reserved, really distant, and then they'll be one of the people to stay. They'll wait until everyone else is done asking questions, and they'll be the person that was waiting in the hallway to get more information on this and tell me that it was surprisingly really good. Yeah, it's true. It's that it's you're opening the door for something yeah. that they didn't think about. Right. And, and then it's kind of like a peeking inside, but I don't show people I'm peeking, peeking inside, but I don't want mom to see. Right. But tell me a little more. Like, where can I learn more about this? I love that. I love that idea where they're the ones like hiding out in the background going, I don't want to be like right in front and talking yeah. to you, but I'm going to wait for everyone else to clear out and then exactly. say <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's why it's like, that's why I wait until everyone has cleared before I take off. It's like, I, I always put in 15 minutes extra because that's oftentimes when the juicy stuff happens, right? That's where people, I think it's kind of like this idea, like you go to a doctor's office and the patient will talk to the doctor for 20 minutes. The doctor goes to leave the room and then the patient talks about their actual biggest issue as the, the doctor's hand is on the doorknob, right? It's like, that's when the hidden stuff comes out and that's when we can really help the most. Absolutely. Do you normally do it like on a, like a regular cadence in these offices or is it kind of like a one off? Yeah. So so it really depends who it's with. So I have clients that I see consistently and then I'm also available to to do like if a team is doing like, you know, a bonding thing. Right. Or if they're doing um, instead of a happy hour. Right. Sometimes people say, let's do something that's not alcohol based. And mm -hmm. then I might get a call to say, hey, at this time on this day, can you come in? And then really there, it's kind of like if people are really taking to the practice, very often then I get the question, like, how do we integrate this? How do we bring this in more frequently? And then from there, it's kind of like, okay, now is an opportunity to take this one off and to take these people who aren't consistently meditating because they, they're seeing the value now. They're recognizing the difference in their mind, body, and emotional states. Now, how do we introduce this to them on a weekly or biweekly basis? Okay, very cool. Mm. Do you... Do you find that there are people that are just like continuing to be resistant to it or like how has that been? So usually if people show up, then they're going to be present, right? I have had the case where 
someone seems a bit resistant and then for whatever reason doesn't show up the next time. It doesn't show up the next time and, you know, kind of has an excuse or tunes in virtually because usually we have this option because so many, so many offices are hybrid now. So we mm-hmm. have a Zoom option and then we have an in-person option and they might actually be in the office, but they're choosing to tune in from their desk. And I can't do anything necessarily about some of those obstacles except make it like just incentivize with presence, right? Come into the room, come into the room. People are going to do what they want. Oftentimes we do break through the resistance and sometimes the resistance is out of my, out of my power. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I was just curious because it, you know, it's so it's, I think it is really powerful, you know, to that idea that you are going into places where people may not be comfortable with sure. the idea of meditation yeah. and all of this. And yeah, and, and it's it's beautiful that you're able to break through, but like, you know, I'm sure there's still a small amount of people that will go, mm. oh, I still don't know. Yeah. You know, Jessica, I just I just try to make a bunch of jokes, right? <laughs> like keep like keeping true, keeping true with form, still being me. You can probably tell I make a lot of jokes anyway, but it's it's always like, what is our topic for today? What are we getting through? And then how do we communicate with this group of living beings the best? Mm. And that'll shift. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So another thing that we had talked about before we started this was talking about creativity. Mm. And so you started to share something really amazing. And so I would love to hear some of your thoughts about like how creativity plays into your world and the work that you do. Absolutely. So one of the things that I talk a decent amount about when I'm teaching is the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain. And I'm using opposites in hopes that this video doesn't change me. So my right is your left and my left is your right, right? So very often, almost entirely in in the society in which we live, we are left hemisphere oriented. And that tends to be very linear, very agenda-based, very sex, money, power. Anything that is not that falls to the wayside and I don't care right? I got something to do. I'm going to get it done. Focus, 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 go. You can think of it as quite masculine, not male necessarily, but quite masculine in nature, right? And then the right hemisphere tends to be open and receiving. And this is where we recognize patterns. This is why anything new, whether it be a partnership or a new uh, vacation, right, is very exciting because I don't already have an idea of what it looks like. This is where things are really alive and feel new. Whereas on the left side, we make things dead and lifeless. So they become quite mechanical and we can break them down in parts. In the right hemisphere, we view things as innovative, creative. This is something that lives outside of this box, right? And so the struggle with predominantly living in the left hemisphere, and even now you and I are talking on something, this medium is totally left hemisphere, right? Because it's two-dimensional in nature. It operates on zeros and ones. This is binary. But when we go back over to the right hemisphere, we might think of things like poetry and dance and flow and movement. And so oftentimes people will ask, how do I get back into the right hemisphere? How do I make them operate at the same time? Well, how do I do math and still be creative? It's like, yeah, you can do all those things. Just begin to understand what sort of practices is going to bring those two together. What sort of practices are going to bring those two together? And we have to take it back to step one. We have to learn how to relax, clear the baseline, bring it back. (sighs) 
okay. And then we hone the attention, not in a focused way. We still have understanding of what's happening around us, the periphery, and then we expand. And that level of expansion is when you'll notice this is where creativity comes in. This is how we can think outside the box. This is where associations are made that are not inside that box. They're not things I've already thought about. So in thinking about, right, so when we expand, this is where different associations come from. This is where ideas that we have not previously recognized have a connective measure to that problem we have arise, right? So this, in this right hemisphere space, where the two are simultaneously operating, this is where things like creativity and innovation can really arise because we're giving them the space. We're in this expansive field where we're open to receiving new ideas and still fully present and aware, right? So this idea that when we exist in the right hemisphere, we're shutting off our logical mind. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Logical mind is operating in the back, right? You and I are speaking the English language and not deciphering logically the words that we're saying. It's just happening, right? So mm -hmm. when we can shift it over to the right side, we might be able to drop a question, pose a problem, say, how about this thought? What do we think about this? In my business, here's my struggle. And then stop thinking about it. Do a process, do a practice, like relax, let it be, bring it together, focus, allow it to exist, bring it in, now expand. What can I feel? How wide can my awareness get? How, how present can I be? Where is my mindfulness? And then maybe drop the question again, right? And let it be. When we grasp onto something, when we grasp onto anything, especially talking about creativity, it's so difficult to find any new answers because we're so fused with, we're so entrenched in whatever that thought, that problem, that idea it is, we're on. It's like, and then all we can do is dissect what we already know instead of thinking bigger because that's a hemispheric operation. Hmm. That is so interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love what you were saying about the fact that we're not turning off the left side yeah, when yeah. We, we are accessing the right. It's like we're just allow giving ourselves the space right. to breathe into the right while the left is still operating in that's the background. Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's so interesting. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I I love this because, yeah, I feel like creativity is something that a lot of people are kind of you know, we put ourselves into these boxes and we think like we are whether, whether or not we are creative or not, but it's really just, are we allowing ourselves to access our creativity is kind of where you're going. That's exactly it. Amazing. So how do you feel like creativity kind of operates in the work that you do? So creativity is, has a massive, massive part in the work that I do. And it's, it's really interesting for me to notice when I'm struggling or when I'm not feeling creative, then I get to put my own theory to play, right? Mm -hmm. Then I get to say, why am I struggling so much? Oh, it's because I'm acting as a line producer, right? And so, so this would be like, this is kind of production terms for the line producer deals with all the numbers and all the scheduling and all the X, Y, and Z. And then the director deals with all the creativity, deals with what's going to look good, what's the whole picture, how do things fit together. And so I find that in the work that I do, if I'm having a really hard time being creative, that means I'm too entrenched. I'm way too in it. I'm way too in the weeds, right? And if I don't feel expansive, that I must, and I need to feel expansive, that I must take a step back, maybe go for a walk, maybe sit and do a fully relaxing meditation, right? Nothing too intense. Maybe I'm lying in Shavasana and I'm just letting my system relax. And then 
I come back to it. So creativity is a really big part because to the best of my ability, right? It's like, and you know this as well, when we put together programs and I like to, the way I prefer to operate is that I like to create just about everything actually that I offer, right? And so from that space, we consistently need to make sure that what we're offering is not only relevant, but it's right for the people specifically that we're offering it to. And that takes a lot of creative thought. So where small tweaks need to be made, the big picture really needs to be kept in mind. Who am I teaching? What do I want to teach? And how do I want to teach it? And that's that's what creativity is. It's unlike associations meeting, right? That's innovation. And that that's what these practices can really begin to offer because we can begin to expand into a space that does exist outside of the normal box. Absolutely. I, I often think about how like entrepreneurship in its kind of essence requires a great amount of creativity because you really need to to be able to think outside of that box on a continuous basis in terms of what are you offering? What are you doing? How are you doing it? And, and it requires that expansive thinking on a continuous basis. Absolutely. And, and I think if we don't have, if we don't have some sort of practice in place to bring us back to our baseline, to bring us back to that relaxed, still space, that, that's where burnout happens, right? Mm-hmm. It's when people are just in that active go, that linear model for so long, and they're forcing the creativity through various means, right? When they're in that linear model for so long, yeah, it's just like, it it's a ghost coming out the big, coming out the gas pipe, right? And it's like, we really have to learn to refuel our tanks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Last thing I want to talk about. So we, I want to talk about what's next for you. So I, I know you're doing a retreat coming up, but can you talk a little bit more about what is upcoming for you? Absolutely. So the retreat I have coming up is called Mind Body Life Retreat. It's happening in Costa Rica in Guanacaste on the northwestern side on the Pacific Ocean. And it is happening March 13th through 17th. So the reason it's really called Mind Body Life is because this is these are the essential pillars that I see in most any practice we do, right? If that me- most meaningful practice is going to have this ripple out effect to everything. And so I've taken those three pillars. I've teamed up with two other teachers, two other practitioners, and this is what we're offering. So it's me. I'm going to be offering the meditation and the yoga portion. So the meditation, the mind training practices. So the the discourse that I'll be offering is coming in through teaching those three steps. How does the body function? How does the mind work? There's an Ayurvedic specialist who's coming. She's going to be teaching at least one yoga asana class. And then she's going to be teaching us the premise of Ayurveda. So the basics of the collective and then each individual on their group, body and mind, our constitutions, what works for us, what doesn't, all the things we need to know to take that retreat experience and make it last right? When we get home in March. And then there's a shaman. So we're going to have fireside chats with a shaman a couple nights. I think we're on that two or three nights that week. And then we're offering a, a healing ceremony. It's I, I was able to sit in the ceremony with him in January and it it was exceptional. Next level. Don't have words for it. That sounds so exciting. I love yeah. the combination. I think it sounds incredible. I'm like, Honestly, I'm still trying to figure out, I'm like, can I make it? Because I know I told you I have 700 teacher hours, yeah. teacher training. And I'm like, hmm, can I, can I just jump into this retreat right after? <laughs> Why not? 
It would really just, it would just solidify everything you'd already learned. That is so true. But yes, I I hope everyone listening takes a look and because you have a separate website for that, correct? Yeah, exactly. So that's called mindbodyliferetreat.com. Exactly the name, mindbodyliferetreat.com. You can also look, if you go to victoriadavis.co, there's going to be the Costa Rica tab. There's going to be the the retreat tab there that you can can tune into. Very cool. Very Mm -hmm. cool. Okay. So is there anything else that we have not covered off on that you would like to share? The company website is wellspringmind.com. If anyone is interested in bringing that in for kind of a team gathering or for anything more consistent, either one, I'm totally happy to have that conversation. All the information for the corporate offering is there on uh, wellspringmind.com. I do a weekly interview series on Instagram, which Jessica, I need to have you on in this coming month. That happens on Tuesdays called Badass Humans of Impact, because just like you do here, it's really important, I think, to to highlight the people, firstly, who are badasses, who are also making a really global impact that make a difference in people's lives. Because just like the reason I started teaching, if I would have known that these sort of practices were available even younger, I, I would have started them much earlier. Right. And so I think that we can't act on what we don't know. So the more information that we can offer, we just trust that it's going to hit the right ears. And then that impact, we can we can keep having that ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to join one. Okay. So let's dive into our final questions then. Beautiful. Okay. So the, your first question is how would you describe your current relationship with yourself? My current relationship with myself is markedly settled and it seems to be consistently improving. I am one of the hardest people on, I'm very hard on myself. Disappointment is very frequent in my own life. So I think that when I can say that I feel pretty settled with myself, it speaks to massive impact. Amazing. Okay. Next question is, what do you consider most valuable to you right now? State of mind. Most valuable is definitely mental balance and emotional resilience. Yeah. So mental state. What is the best lesson you've learned recently? Great question. Best lesson I've learned recently. Can we come back to that one? Of course. Of course. (laughs) I'll let you noodle on that one. (laughs) What is the number one skill you believe everyone should work on? Mind. Yeah. Attention. I'm going to say attention because it's, it's really the undercurrent of everything else. Yeah. Okay. What do you consider the purpose of life? The purpose of life. I consider the purpose of life to be genuine happiness. Feel it for yourself and then offer it up. Amazing. The other question I, I've been asking is, how would you describe your current purpose? I feel like it's pretty much what we've been talking about. My current purpose really feels like sustaining genuine happiness for myself in this process of subtraction and teaching what I know to be true, both coming from an academic educational standpoint and from an experiential wisdom standpoint. Okay. I have to ask you like a side question off that. How yeah. do you describe genuine happiness? Happiness that is not based on external sources. Genuine happiness. Can I sit by myself in a quiet room and feel markedly content? Oh, that's amazing. Mm. 
You know, it's, I just want to make this comment because I had this conversation. So my partner, just this week, we were talking about what's it called in prison? I, I think it's illegal now when you put some solitary confinement, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How that scene is like, it's almost like capital punishment. It's one of the worst things it's considered inhumane, mm-hmm. I guess. And it's such an interesting concept to me because if you go, like in Eastern tradition, especially like in a lot of monasteries, I think there are a lot of monks that would be like, please, put me in solitary <laughs> confinement. I don't want these chores anymore, right? Yeah. You know, it just speaks to the way we have, the way we have conditioned our own minds and what we need. Like we are so based on these ex- on external validation, on these external sources for for excitement, for balance, for 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 anything. Even the idea that we consider excitement to be a positive term when really like your nervous system is excited, then we don't really want that, right? That's the sympathetic system operating. We're trying. Mm-hmm. We're trying to downregulate that so we can be balanced. And so this idea that solitary confinement is such an inhumane treatment is mind-blowing, really. Because then it's like, what are what are we basing our internal state on? And, and if it's something external, then by definition, it has to be fleeting. Mm. I love that. That is so interesting to think about because it's like, meanwhile, there are you know, all these silent meditation retreats where you are kind of doing, in essence, the same thing, right? You're like, you're alone in your own mind the whole time, but we are choosing to go to that. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And that's the difference. It feels like my choice because I paid money for it or I will after, right? Yeah. It's such a good point. Such a good point. But, But to that point, I think it speaks volumes to the fact that for most people, being in solitary confinement or even going to these silent retreats seems like pure torture, right? Like the ability to sit alone with one's thoughts is a very scary place. And and I, I certainly can attest to that. You know, I felt that for much of my life, right? Like where it was just like, I don't want to be alone. Like being home alone just seemed like a horrifying idea because I'm like, then it's just me. Like I have to like put on the TV, put on music, put on something to distract me so that I'm not up here. And it's hard for people. And now I'm like, no, like leave me in a room by myself all day long. And I'm, I'm like golden. <laughs> yeah. You know, and Jessica, this is what I was really talking about when we were talking about OCD as, as a clinical diagnosis, mm-hmm. obsessive, intrusive thoughts. Who does that sound like? Just about everybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's And things are really just on a gradient. It's like some seem like they're over here, but if you really provoke someone in some sort of situation, right, you can get just about anyone here. Yeah. And so when we don't have that external stimulation to distract us, or if we don't have the ability to focus our attention outward, then we're probably going to be over here. Obsessive and intrusive isn't a difficult slide, right? Yeah. yeah. And so- Coming from that level of understanding, if we can't get comfortable with the thoughts in our own minds, if we're too busy to meditate because we can't shut our minds off, that maybe we should just become okay, develop a relationship with whatever contents are arising so that at some point you can actually begin to modify and curate it based upon the experience you want to have that supports and aligns with your purpose. Mm. Wow. That right there, I'm like, that was exactly 
I needed to, to rehear that because it, it is so true, right? It's, yeah. it, it is all of us. And yeah. it's just the idea that it's like, some people may over index on having these intrusive thoughts, but everyone experiences them to some totally. degree. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, we live in, we live in New York City, i.e. Times Square. You go into Times Square, it's like, this is like the mecca of intrusive thought, right? Yeah. It's like shiny light, flashing screen, that, 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 that. And it was designed for that. Our society is literally designed for distraction. And so it takes a lot of effort to undo that. Yeah. And the yeah. effort really is just sitting and relaxing. So the effort is just choosing to do. I think it's a certain amount of like feeling okay that it happens, right? Because it's to to the your point, we are not fighting the mind and saying we don't want thinking. It's that right. we accept the fact that things come up yeah. and and feel okay about them coming up and right. and then ground ourselves and allow them to to like kind of pass through. Yeah. So here's what I'll really say, and, and this might be, could be the final thing I say about this, right? The way to really develop a relationship with your mind is to learn how to observe it. And so this is something I talk about a lot when I teach. There's this observational distance that happens between what's being observed, meaning the contents of your own mind and the observer themselves, right? The space of your own mind. You can call this the self if that's within your belief system, right? Who and what is observing all of those thoughts, all of those emotions, all of those ideas. And you can even imagine it like a parade, right? If I were watching a parade going down the street, would I, as an audience member, jump into that parade? Well, then I wouldn't be able to see it very well, would I? right? Mm. So then we really use those three steps to learn how to observe the contents of our own minds so that no matter what's coming up, if I have a violent thought about my beautiful little dog, that's going to pass because every single thought, every mental appearance, whether it's a to-do list or an emotion, has a life cycle. It will arise, it's going to abide for a time, and then it will dissolve. And it'll do that of its own accord. I don't have to get involved because if I do jump in, if I do fuse with that thought, I'm going to put it on life support and then it's going to hang around even longer. And that's why when we really rehash things, when we think, why won't this idea leave me alone? Well, because you keep grabbing onto it. If you have a preference about something, you're replanting it. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to grow back up. Just let it die. The way to let it die is learn how to observe it. And this is why attention is so important. What you're talking about makes me think of how Dharma talks about being the witness, right? Yes, so is, is exactly. witnessing our thoughts and exactly. not and not what is the way to think about it? Like not grasping onto it and because we are choosing to hold on to that thought. Totally. Totally. And you can almost think of it, I would add the word impassive as an impassive witness, meaning I don't care about it, right? Because we have a preference. It's amazing. If you start to watch your mind, we have a preference. You can be watching waves in the ocean. I like this wave. I don't like that wave, right? Or it's neutral. That's impassivity. I don't mm -hmm. mind either way. Instead of the plus or minus, let's just make it all neutral. Okay. To the, in the sake of practice, right? To the best of my ability. If someone cuts me off, all right. Watching the thought, do I want to lift my middle finger? Maybe. Watching it. Impassive witness, right? Observational distance. Let it be, just like Dharma says. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Do you want to come back to 
the yes. best, your most recent lesson. What, what was the question again? The question was, what is the best lesson you've learned recently? What is the best lesson I've learned recently? Anything Dharma said last Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> best lesson I've learned recently. Mm, actually, this is going to sound really silly. Sleep is really important. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that. Experientially, oftentimes I teach very early in the morning. And I've been taking one day a week to let myself sleep in. It's on a Wednesday. I don't set an alarm that day. And I don't plan anything for early morning. And allowing myself to sleep in is so beneficial. Yeah. I also meditate in bed. And the combination of those things is do not underestimate sleep. Yeah. I love that don't set an alarm ability because I, I don't know if I always have even like a well, this is the very last moment that I want to wake up kind of thing. I will. I yeah. always set an alarm. So the fact that yeah. you can just set, not set an alarm, it, it is powerful. So powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And the, really the reason I did that was because I was thinking like, I feel like, I just feel kind of tired, right? And so I was noticing that even my meditations didn't feel like they were really strong. But then I thought, oh, I have so much to do. I just can't. Mm -hmm. But really... When, we're, when we spend time doing things for our own mind, right, when we get enough sleep and when we actually meditate every day, we get more done in the hours that we work. So why wouldn't we work less and get more done and also feel better doing it? Yes, yes. I could not agree more. I could not mm -hmm. agree more. Because to me, I, I always set aside morning time to do pranayama and meditation. Yes. And even when it kind of goes into my work day, quote unquote, to me, I'm like, I would rather prioritize that because I will be more effective. So Absolutely. I am with you. Absolutely. My workday is less effective if I don't do this. Yeah. Which means that this is part of my work. Mm, yes. A hundred percent. Yes. All right. So thank you so much, Victoria. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, many hours, and I will talk to you for many more hours. I'm certain of it. Where would you? Yes. So if you want to check out everything that Victoria is doing, it's victoriadavis.co. Is there anywhere else that you want people to reach out to you? wellspringmind.com is the company website and then mindbodyliferetreat.com is if you want to join us in Costa Rica in March. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Victoria. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Jessica. Same. Thank you for joining us on this episode of A Way of Thinking. I hope it has been a source of inspiration and guidance as you continue to navigate your path towards greater inner peace and purpose. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Your feedback helps us reach more seekers like you. And for those of you who are ready to take a deeper dive into your journey, I invite you to book a discovery session with me, your host, Jessica Huang. It's an opportunity for us to explore how you can bring greater meaning and purpose into your career and life. Simply visit jessicahuangcoaching.com and schedule your session today. Remember, the power to create the life you desire resides within you, and I'm here to support you every step of the way. Until next time, embrace the journey, 
Cultivate your inner peace and never stop seeking your true purpose.